I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. We care about your world. Where do you live? Vermont. Nice, nice. All the good people seem to live in Vermont now. Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont. You've got a great, great area there. Yeah, it's kind of like an oasis of sanity in the midst of this completely insane world. <laughs> the Vermont fantasy world. Yeah, I love it here. What city are you in? I'm not in a city. I'm out in the woods. <laughs> where, where you chop wood to heat your house exactly there are a lot of us up here who do that i know it's like because you know when i first moved here 30 years ago you know we'd have wood fires mostly we had our, our gas furnace but you know you have wood fires to boost the heat on a cold day and that time is long gone you know there's too much air pollution and just not enough wood but you know part of what i work on is a sustainable population, which looks like it's what we had 100 years ago, which isn't that big a deal. Right? It's just 100 years ago. But you know, 100 years ago, most places were heated by wood, right? And, and we didn't chop down all the forests or anything. But you know, a factor of four or five times more people, you know, that's a whole different matter. We can't do that anymore. So you know, assuming we decide to get back to a sustainable population, we'll be able to heat houses with wood stoves again. Yep. And we'll get to the population issue later in the conversation. Yeah. So let me introduce you and we'll jump into it. Great. My guest is Peter Fikowski. He's an MIT educated physicist and engineer, an entrepreneur, philanthropist, and social innovator. He's worked at NASA and taught at MIT. A decade ago, Peter began working on climate restoration and created the Foundation for Climate Restoration, which works with scientists, innovators, policymakers, activists, and students to further climate restoration and has been instrumental in the adoption of climate restoration as a goal by the Vatican and the United Nations. 
as well as other nonprofit organizations dedicated to reducing atmospheric carbon and methane concentrations back to pre-industrial levels. He's also the founder of the Stable Planet Alliance, which is working to frame the next set of United Nations development goals to achieve a healthy, sustainable population by 2100. And Peter is the author of this new book that we'll be talking about, Climate Restoration, the only future that will sustain the human race. So Peter, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. I'm looking forward to it. I really enjoyed this book. And, you know, pretty much every day I hear something about the effects of climate change, but I don't hear anything about climate restoration other than a few stray renegades who are off doing sustainable cattle raising practices, which, as you point out in the book, will have a negligible effect on the climate. Yeah. So let's begin by talking about your background, how you got into this field and came to write this book. Because you wrote in the book that as recently as 2010, no one, including you, had imagined that climate restoration was even possible. Yeah. So I'm a physicist by training. I went to MIT and I studied astrophysics. And back at MIT, as an undergraduate in 1974-75, I read about global warming and that the CO2 that we're pouring into the atmosphere eventually is going to have the bad effect of overheating the planet. It was pretty obvious. The physics is quite simple for a physicist. And it was clear that we were going to have to get a trillion tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere. And as a 19-year-old, I thought, well, that's a chemical engineering problem. And the chemical engineers have done it for spacecraft, right? This is just the tail end of the Apollo project. You know, we were still landing men on the moon, and uh, we've done it in submarines. And I thought, well, especially at 19, I'm not good enough to do anything useful there. So I, I stuck to my astrophysics and really put that all away. I said, like, that's just not my thing. I'll empower the people who know how to remove CO2 to do that by staying out of their way and took on other projects. I worked at an artificial intelligence lab, continued my work in astrophysics for a while and ended up starting a business in computer imaging analysis for uh, semiconductor manufacturing, making computer chips, which has nothing to do with climate in the end, other than I have a business which gives me some income to do this work, which is totally unfunded by any other organization, even here in 2022. So that story starts in 75 with me saying, someone's going to get the carbon out of the atmosphere. And in the 80s and 90s, I did a lot of my volunteer work in the world on poverty reduction and hunger reduction, eliminating extreme poverty and persistent hunger. And we made a lot of progress in those decades. We worked with UNICEF. UNICEF came to us, the organization I was volunteering with called results.org, which is still very active, and asked us to help them get enough funding to fulfill their promise to immunize all the world's children, to make sure everyone gets the DPT shots. And I apologize for not remembering what they are exactly, but the standard child vaccinations. Because back in the late 70s, it was just 
North America and Europe, where we would vaccinate our children. And so UNICEF promised audaciously to bring the vaccination rate from 8% to 100% by 1980. In fact, we did get the funding, despite the fact it was the Reagan administration. And most experts said that was we would just have to wait till a Democratic administration came in who felt that was the thing to do. But despite that, the vaccination rate went to 85 and it's been 85 percent. You know, really, it changed the whole world because throughout the world now, most children survive. You know, overall, the child survival rate over the last 100 years has tripled from about 30, 40, 50 percent to now it's 95 percent. And that's due to a lot of people being very intentional. So, you know, we did that. We worked on microfinance. We worked with the founder of the microcredit microfinance movement, Muhammad Yunus, and took on getting at least half of the world's poor living on less than a dollar a day, getting those people involved with microfinance. And we succeeded. It took 11 years and not 10, but we actually did it and learned a lot from making such an audacious promise. And then we also took on turning around the AIDS epidemic and worked with the Bush administration to get the funding for AIDS treatment. And it really was the pinnacle of the Bush administration, their legacy. So with all of these, I saw that we were making great progress. By 2010, it was clear that the progress was plateauing, that more and more places, their harvests were decreasing because of global warming, people were migrating, and things were looking increasingly grim. And so I finally went back to looking at the climate. and. I figured that people working on the climate had learned the same lesson I had learned, which is figure out what you want to accomplish and then make a plan to do it. You know, so if it's immunizing the world's kids, UNICEF made a plan to do it, and then they did it. And if it's you know, microfinance, figure out you know, how you're going to measure your results and then figure out how to produce those results. On the climate, I figured that people knew what they wanted to accomplish and that we were busy doing it. It turned out I talked with Dr. Jim Hansen, who's considered the grandfather of climate science, of modern global warming analysis. He was at NASA, uh, research head at NASA for a long time. And he was also on the board of one of the organizations I worked with, Citizens Climate Lobby. So I asked him, what, what's our goal here? What, what do we want to accomplish? And sort of implicitly, why aren't we accomplishing it? And his answer was, I don't know. And I was really thrown for a loop until I realized that, you know, when I'm being a physicist, I just want to get the knowledge. I want to get the information. And as a physicist, it was not fair for me to ask him what the goal is, because that's a policy question, not a physics question. But the truth is that the policymakers were following the physicists. And you know, the goal you may have heard for climate for about 40 years has been to reduce the worst aspects of global warming. And I don't know what that means now, 40 years later. You know, I don't know if anyone does. So the long story short there is I dropped out of the game for a while because my life is short. I don't have time to work on a project which can't succeed. So I dropped climate. And then my daughter came home from college a month or two later. And I realized that I had to fulfill my mission. Um, the mission I put on my wall is to leave a world that we're proud of for our children. And... Yeah, I would not be proud of leaving a world where humanity can't survive. And that was clearly where we were headed. So I finally took up the mantle, and that's where climate restoration got born. 
is I realized that just given the mission statement on my wall, the target is a climate that our grandchildren will survive and flourish in. And that's technically getting CO2 below 300 parts per million. And just for very quick reference, where is CO2 levels right now? Right now, we're 50% above that, just about. We're at 420 parts per million. So we're way above anything that experts think we have a decent chance of surviving. So give us a kind of a fairly quick primer on how CO2 levels affect our environment, the atmosphere, and in particular in relation to humans' ability to thrive on this planet, as well as most of life on this planet. Yeah. So CO2 has two main characteristics. One is it's a greenhouse gas, which means that if you've been in a greenhouse, you notice that it's much warmer in the greenhouse than outside because the glass windows keep the infrared light in. So the sunlight comes in and then stays in. CO2 has the same effect, that it acted like a blanket on the earth and keeps us warmer than we would be if we didn't have CO2 in the air. And of course, CO2 also is uh, food for plants. This way we need oxygen to do our metabolism. Plants need CO2 in order to grow and build their leaves and branches and fruits. The more CO2, for the most part, the easier it is for them. But just like oxygen, over a period of millions of years, plants get designed for a certain optimal level of CO2. And when CO2 goes up, although it's easier, they need to change their mechanisms to adapt to that different CO2. And so as CO2 goes up, temperatures goes up. In my book, in the first chapter, I have data from Dr. Jim Hansen showing how if you plot CO2 and temperature over the last million years, and we've been able to measure the CO2 by looking at ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica, where it snows and the snow turns into ice and accumulates, but little bubbles of air get locked in. And so it gives the scientists a historical record for the last million years. Now, a million years ago, 800,000 years ago, the planet was warm enough that you didn't have any of these glaciers in Greenland and Antarctica. But with the CO2 level, you can see that the temperature and CO2 just go up and down in lockstep. And sea level also as well, because as the planet gets colder, more and more ice stays as ice you know, on glaciers and in the northern and you know, in cold areas. And that ice above out of the sea reduces the sea level. So it's very nice correlation. There's no serious question about it. And when CO2 levels get high like they are now today. CO2 is at levels last seen about four or five million years ago. And the pre-human species that evolved from bonobos and chimps, that evolved only three million years ago. So the last time it was this hot was well before humans or even pre-humans evolved. Obviously, a lot of life survived fine, but certainly there wasn't any agriculture or civilization back then. It's just a lot warmer planet. Here's an example. Visualize the Arctic, visualize northern Alaska and Greenland with camels and palm trees. If you go up there, you'll see the remnants of camels and palm trees from you know, several million years ago. So we don't want that. And unfortunately, 
that is the future that we've painted ourselves into if we don't look at it differently. And climate restoration is to look at it differently. So you begin the book by telling two stories of the future. The first one is based upon the Paris Accord net zero emissions target by 2050. Tell us what's wrong with that story and that Paris Accord target. Yeah. So the Paris Accord target, essentially net zero by 2050, also gets framed as trying to keep the temperature rise below two degrees. Or in Paris, they said, well, maybe we can try for below one and a half degrees, although we've pretty much lost that race now this year. The trouble with that is, as I said, no one's ever said that humanity has a decent chance of survival. No one ever asked that question. You know, with the UN framework for climate change, they never ask them, you know, make sure, you know, figure out what we need for humanity to survive. It just wasn't, didn't seem feel appropriate at the time, I think. And so they didn't, they just said, what can we do to make it less worse? And hopefully God will take care of us and we won't go extinct. And if, you know, if we go extinct, so be it. So that's the problem with it, is that it was framed with the sort of a religious assumption that God would take care of us no matter what we did. And that's clearly no longer the case now that we see the wildfires and storms and hurricanes and floods and the loss of 90-some percent of ocean life. So you know, it was basically groupthink that everyone assumed that, well, if everyone else says our goal should be net zero, then that probably is what our goal should be. And as I said, if we do that, then CO2 levels will get to 460 parts per million. It's uh, fairly easy to calculate, just assuming that we continue expanding our renewable energy work. But 460 is way over 50% more than humans have ever survived. And it puts the planet well into that regime where you have palm trees and alligators in the Arctic. So, you know, parents like myself, but I think most of our listeners are probably parents or nieces and nephews and uncles and aunts. We want our children to survive. And I frame in the book the concept of a safe harbor. And so the problem that stymied people about climate was what should our goal be? You know, should it be, some people say we should maximize plant growth since we like to eat plants. And so then the higher the CO2, the better. If you've heard some climate deniers, they've made that claim very commonly. Others say that we should you know, stabilize the climate just so that we're no longer damaging it. So hopefully yeah, we can go to heaven or something like that because we're not damaging the planet. And then the safe harbor idea is, well, we don't know what's going to be good for the future generations, but we do know that for 10,000 years, while we developed agriculture, CO2 was right around 280 parts per million. So there's every reason to think that if we restore that CO2 level on our planet, that the ecosystems that allowed us to develop will get restored and the temperatures and you know, life can go back to being good for humans again. So that's called the safe harbor. The idea is when a ship is in stormy seas and things are looking grim, the captain will find the nearest safe harbor where he and the ship have been before and go straight there as quick as he can. 
And even if a PhD on board says, listen, I think there's an island over here, and I think we can survive on that island, the captain, a good captain, will say, thank you very much. We're going to the place where we've been before because we know that we can survive there. And that's getting CO2 back below 300 and back down to 280 parts per million, which we had for 10,000 years. So again, I have not heard anything about climate restoration in the media or even from our most high-profile climate activists. Why is nobody talking about this? Oh, there's no definitive answer. You're probably asking me, what's my interpretation? The first thing is that it's scary that people don't like thinking about it. I didn't like thinking about it. And the second is, because of that, we say, well, I'll just depend on the experts. And if the experts say that what we need to do is net zero emissions, then that's what it is, and I'm not going to think about it. Now, when I've confronted the top experts at the UN, so there's the UNFCCC, so Framework for Climate Change, I got that wrong, but it's close. And then they have their Council of Experts, which is the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And that's about 3,000 top scientists who write articles and compile data about the climate. And so when they do their modeling on what's going to happen, they just say, well, if we continue on the path we're on, here's what will happen. They never wrote a pathway for, well, if we want humanity to survive, here's what to do. They never did that. And it's a bit of a mystery, and I think it's just too scary. And when I talk to the top IPCC experts, you know, the top of the tip-top scientists, and I say, well, why are we targeting a goal that we are unlikely to survive? The answer is, it's complicated, Peter. That's the best answer they can give, and they know I'm an MIT physicist. So it's been too scary. Now, one thing I've learned from my transformational experiences over many decades is the first step to creating a new future that you want is to get clear about what is it that you don't like about the present and just tell the truth about it. And then part of that truth is, well, what's the predictable, almost certain future that we're headed into. And again, that's a question that we avoid because it's so scary. You know, some people might be in a bad marriage and they don't want to admit that the predictable future for them is probably divorce because it's just so wrong for them. But you know, once a person or a couple realizes that's the where things are headed, they can actually make a left turn or a right turn and change things. But as long as they resist it, they won't. Similarly, when we realize that between the climate and population, we have 10 times the population that was stable during that stable climate period, you know, the predictable future is that humanity will collapse. And you know, most of the ecosystems that we depend on will collapse. And they'll turn to something new, but it won't be ours. It'll be basically what T-Rex, you know, what the dinosaurs liked. So once you actually have the guts to say, well, the predictable almost certain future is we're not going to make it. Then you take a long sleep and say, okay, good. Well, if we were to make it, what would that look like? And how would we get there? And that's climate restoration. So it just takes a lot of guts. And I think people are beginning to get on the train, as I like to say, to getting CO2 back to pre-industrial levels. So to 
get a better understanding of how we can not just get there, but how we can actually even approach thinking about and accepting how we can get there in our current climate. And I mean, like the information climate about climate change right now, because right now, essentially in the news, we're hearing about how we're not even living up to the Paris Accord net zero emissions target. And yet in the book, you say that we actually are well on our way to achieving net zero by 2050. Could you talk about the pattern of technology disruption that actually causes us to severely underestimate the possibility of change and the kind of change that actually happens over and over again throughout history and in particular is happening in the energy sector and that even the current political and economic short-sightedness and greed won't stop that current trend in technological disruption that's leading towards net zero by 2050. And then we can use that to jump to the technology for climate restoration. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think it's important to start the inquiry and learning about the energy transition from a very high sort of a neuroscience level, that there's a myth that's called mental causation. So we think that our thoughts cause action, that if I think I need to lose five pounds, that I will take the action to lose five pounds. And, you know, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. You know, for me, it doesn't. <laughs> I've been wanting to lose that five pounds for about 30 years. And what really causes action is sort of our collective thinking. So if everyone plays TikTok, you know, which is a popular thing these days, which I haven't tried yet, then people do it. People do what's the norm. And when everyone says we're going to get to net zero by 2050, then everyone's actions are consistent with that. We find more and more cities and nations are saying we're going to get to net zero by 2050. And now there more of them are saying 2045, 2040. I think I read that somewhere was targeting net zero by 2035, which is absolutely doable. But my point is that we're really a collective species and we work together and we set a goal and unconsciously it works its magic. And so we've been talking about it and we're doing it. Specifically, you know, if you think about 2050 and we're pretty much all using clean energy and you say, what does it look like? You say, well, we're not using fossil fuels, which means all of our energy needs are coming from clean sources. At the moment, that looks like it'll be solar and wind because they're abundant and they're now about half the cost of using natural gas or coal in most parts of the world. And soon it'll be all parts of the world. So you know, it'll look like we've built up enough solar and wind capacity and batteries and other energy storage, electric vehicles, and so on, in order to switch over. And then when you think about it, you realize, oh, we know how much it costs to make a solar farm. It, roughly speaking, it's about a dollar per watt or maybe a dollar and a half, depending on how you look at it. And the total amount of energy used on the planet by humans is, if you look it up on Google, it's about 20,000 20, gigawatts. So if you think of all the coal and oil and natural gas that's used, along with the solar and wind, it all totals up to equivalent of about 20,000 big coal plants or nuclear plants are all, the big ones are around a gigawatt. 
And so in order to do that, if you multiply 20 trillion watts times $1, that's $20 trillion that's needed. And if you'd want to do that over 20 years, say between 2022 and 2042, that comes out to about a trillion dollars a year that needs to be invested in the wind and solar and batteries and transmission. And that's exactly what people are planning. And right now we're spending about $5 trillion per year on fossil fuel. So investing $1 trillion or maybe two in renewable energy is not a big deal at all. It's like pretty much guaranteed. So the good news is we've really got it made. You know, I think you're asking, why is it we haven't heard that? And the answer is it doesn't make good headlines, <laughs> right? Who's going to publish something that says, oh, you know, the investors and the technologists are doing the right thing. What makes the news is all the people who are tearing their hair out and lighting their hair on fire saying, oh my God, it's terrible. So that's just the way news works as you wouldn't hear about it. And the other thing is there is a conspiracy here. It's a well-intentioned conspiracy. When I first introduced the concept of climate restoration, I got very strong pushback from those UN scientists. And they said, listen, Peter, if you let people know that we have a way to restore the climate, they're going to stop writing these terrible articles about how terrible it is, and we may not make the changes we need to restore the climate, to build the clean energy and get the carbon dioxide out. It was well-intentioned, but that may be the reason that the UN never even offered a pathway where humans would survive, because they didn't want us to get too relaxed about the problem, because they thought that the way you got action was by scaring people, which is you know, justifiable. That's how we got into World War II, is we got scared. People got emotionally scared from Pearl Harbor, and then we took action. So I, I can understand why the scientists thought the same thing would be needed to take climate action. But the good news is we're taking the climate action right now. Mm -hmm. So you write that there are many technologies that capture carbon from the atmosphere, but the issue is scalability and also economic incentive to fund it or to make it economically viable in a capitalist culture, since we seem to be much more interested in short-term profit than actual future survival. So talk about the three criteria that you bring to the assessment of and choosing of technologies for climate restoration. Yeah, yeah. So you may have heard in the last year, year and a half, the UN started saying that we have to remove CO2 from the atmosphere to meet the UN goals, which aren't sufficient goals, but you know, it's where you start. A year ago, the US Congress passed the infrastructure bill, which allocated three and a half billion dollars for carbon removal. And it's getting a lot of good press, a lot of investment up in the billion dollars per year of investment. Now, the good news is people can see that we need to remove CO2. The bad news is the goal people are setting is this unsurvivable goal that of just getting to net zero, just stopping emission of CO2. Now, it's important to remember that CO2 stays in the atmosphere for thousands of years, you know, one to 2,000 years, because where is it gonna go? <laughs> it's sort of like it's in the air. And where it ends up going is getting dissolved into the ocean, mostly. 
Some of it goes into forests, but it's well known that trees eventually die and either rot or burn. So even though some goes into forests, that comes back into the air. Then, so the thing that we've introduced is the three criteria for climate restoration solutions. And a solution that actually is going to keep our species alive, it needs to be scalable, scalable up to the level that's needed to remove that trillion tons of excess CO2 by 2050. And that comes to about 60 billion tons a year. It needs to be permanent. The CO2 needs to be kept out of the atmosphere for at least 100 years, and preferably 1,000 or 10,000 years or a million. And the third one, it needs to be viable, that if you don't have someone to pay for it, it's not a very good solution. So a lot of the solutions being worked on now, a lot of them can scale. This direct air capture work, which is very popular and gets billions of dollars of funding and investment, it, right now, it's about 1000 or $500 per ton to remove, and they hope they can get it down to $100 a ton. But if they do get it down by a factor of 5 or 10 in cost, they'll still cost $100 trillion to sequester all the carbon out of the air, and then another $20 trillion to sequester it underground, where it'll stay for a few hundred years. And the whole global GDP, the whole global budget, is less than $100 billion. So this is more than all the money in the world. So unlikely to happen. Scientifically interesting, totally unlikely to happen. On the other hand, there are methods, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, which are a thousandth of that cost. And those are the methods that we want to pursue since we want to keep our planet livable for humans. So the three criteria is that it's scalable, permanent, and financially viable. So let's now talk about the viable existing technologies that can restore the climate. And let's begin with explaining limestone carbon capture and why it's such a practical and effective way to actually, you know, quote unquote, save the world. Yeah. So just a little background there. When I started this out, I was a big fan of the direct air capture and the high tech solutions. And it made sense because what we had been doing up until recently, as I mentioned, were spacecraft and as submarines, which used high tech carbon dioxide capturing mechanisms. It turns out that having worked on this for many years, that Although the high tech is appealing and exciting and makes good scientific papers, what actually works really well is what nature has done. And nature has removed a trillion tons of CO2 that we need 10 times over the last billion years before ice ages. And then it's removed far more than that over hundreds of million years in the form of limestone. And limestone by weight is almost half CO2. And... 99% of the carbon on our planet is now sequestered on the bottom of oceans or bottom of previous oceans in the form of limestone that came from skeletons and shells over hundreds of millions of years. And it turns out that we can make synthetic limestone. And you can imagine that if you think of an oyster, like on your dinner plate at a restaurant, then the shell is limestone. It's calcium carbonate and you know, different crystalline forms. And the oyster creates a rock 
you know, from the CO2 pulled out of the ocean, which came out of the air, and from calcium from the ocean. And there's a company here in Silicon Valley that makes synthetic limestone. It does essentially the same chemistry that the oyster does, but does it in a factory and produces limestone. And we use so much limestone, so much rock on our planet for our roads and our buildings. It's about seven tons every year for every man, woman, and child alive. It's hard to imagine seven tons of rock that we use. If we switch over to synthetic limestone, where that rock comes out of a local synthetic limestone factory, then we could actually sequester all trillion tons of CO2 and sell it profitably into the construction industry for roads and buildings. Now, it's not easy, but it's not terribly hard. You know, it's been demonstrated. We know how to scale it up if we want to. So that's the easiest one to see in large part because the factory that does it started operating just about a year ago and is scaling up in its speed. And that company, which is called Blue Planet Systems, here in California, is preparing to build some new plants next year as well. So the point is it's happening. That synthetic limestone was used and it's being used at the San Francisco airport, not far from here, for use in their terminals and soon in their runways. And it's been tested for about four or five years, and they've written articles, and they're thrilled. And if you think about it, it makes sense that when you have rock from the seafloor, this could be a lot of variability. When you create the rock chemically, then you can get very pure and exactly the crystalline structure you want for the weight and the strength and the hardness that the application needs. And so the synthetic limestone is getting to be very highly desired. And the problem is to gear up the investment fast enough to manufacture it. So that's the first one. You're involved in policymaking as well as the physics of things. So you understand how these things, you know, the process that technology goes through to scale up. Yeah. What would it take? And what are your projections of how that would unfold? And what are the obstacles? Yeah. Well, it's a better question to ask when we talk about the ocean fertilization, the ocean restoration. When we look at the limestone, the policies are mostly in place already at the beginning of this year, 2022. The administration put rules in for government procurement in the General Services Administration, if you know what that is. And they require that when available, all new construction should use low carbon concrete. And that would be using the synthetic limestone or if there's something else, but no one can imagine something else yet. And so that rule is in place, and that helped Blue Planet garner more investment so they could plan to open two or three plants next year instead of just one. And it's really that simple. It's amazing, but it's really just that simple. The government's saying, because we're concerned about the climate, as long as the price is reasonable, use the low-carbon rock. Because this synthetic limestone makes concrete, which is very carbon, you know, produce a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. When you use synthetic limestone, it becomes a net absorber. So although the cement still produces a fair bit of CO2, the cement is only 10 or 12% of the concrete. Most of the concrete is rock, rock and sand. And so if you use the synthetic limestone, which is half 
by weight CO2 than one cubic yard of concrete, if you can visualize that, which weighs about two tons, sequesters almost a ton of CO2. And so now the big buildings that we were dreading become places where we're sequestering CO2 rather than things that emit CO2. So it's very exciting. And that's in process. The barrier, you know, if we want it to go faster, the barrier is that people aren't even thinking about it. And so one of my jobs as an advisor to Blue Planet is to keep raising their ambition because the rate at which their investors want to grow the company is sort of carefully, steadily growing it because they're developing new technology. No one's, no one's done customized rock before. So that's a whole new field they have to document and figure out how to sell it to people, for example. And the biggest barrier is everyone involved is looking at today's standard net zero by 2050. And so there's a certain day-by-day feel to it when people think about restoring the climate by 2050. And so not net zero, but having removed a trillion tons by 2050, then we would have to scale it a lot faster. And that will happen. Hopefully, it won't have to happen too fast because the ocean restoration pathway is much faster and even less expensive. The limestone is self-funding. So the funding, the revenue they earn from selling the rock is more than enough to pay for the whole process of capturing the CO2 and doing the chemistry to turn it into rock. Okay, so now let's talk about marine permaculture and using the ocean as what you say is the much faster and more efficient approach to climate restoration and cheaper. Yes, yes, yes. Well, there are two pathways in the ocean. There's the ocean permaculture and there's also the ocean iron fertilization. And I'll talk mostly about the iron fertilization in the book when we wrote it a year and a half ago. Politically, the ocean fertilization was a little looked sideways upon, but things have changed in a good way very rapidly since we wrote the book. And so, you know, if I were to rewrite it, I would put the ocean fertilization chapter first now. We put it towards the end because politically it was touch and go. So the ocean is most of our planet. You know, it's a blue planet and it should be not called Earth, but should be called ocean because mostly it's ocean. And so photosynthesis has always been or is typically the way we imagine getting CO2 out of the atmosphere. We think of trees, but as I said, trees will die and rot or burn after a few decades. In the ocean, when plants grow and the plants in the ocean are either microalgae or phytoplankton, which makes the ocean green, or macroalgae, seaweed, but they're basically the same plant variations on it. And for the ocean to be green rather than blue. Now, granted, blue ocean is beautiful. I love blue ocean. It's clear, but it's not green. There's nothing growing. And so what we want for a healthy ocean is a lot of green ocean. So you have food for the fish and lots of fish. And the ocean has been turning bluer and bluer over the last several decades for complicated reasons. But basically, there's been less of the critical nutrient which is iron. As I said, there's lots of sun and lots of water in the ocean, and there's plenty of nitrogen and even phosphorus in most of the ocean, but what's missing is iron. 
the amount of iron needed is unbelievably low. If you think of one part per million, the amount of iron in the ocean is a few millionths of a part per million. So it's a, a few parts per trillion. And that's interesting for two reasons. One is that incredibly low concentration is difficult to measure. And so it was only 30 years ago, 30 to 35 years ago, that the scientists figured out the significance of iron in ocean health. And the second is, in order to provide that iron, it's phenomenally small amounts. So if you want to turn an area of ocean from blue to green, so it's photosynthesizing and pulling CO2 out of the air and providing oxygen also, then it's about a hundredth of a teaspoon per square meter. So if you think of your tabletop, which is probably two square meters, you know, two hundredths of a teaspoon, you know, a milligram or two. And that's once a year. So very small amount. But that's enough to turn the ocean green. And then when they do that, they'll do it in, similar to the, how nature does it, localized areas. The people who do it, do it in eddies, which is just a, like a whirlpool, but about 100 miles in diameter, which are all over the ocean. But it contains it because the water is going in circles rather than a long linear current, like the Gulf Stream, for example. And so they do it inside the eddy. And within a few hours, it starts turning green. And within a few days, you start seeing fish coming because the fish can tell that there's a lunch buffet. It turns out that the plankton, the algae, feed microorganisms which make noise, which the fish hear, and tell them where the food is. And so you see the fish coming back in a few days, and then you see whales coming because the fish are there. You'll see the seabirds coming because the fish are there. And I'm told by the people who've done it, it's incredibly exciting just to see this whole menagerie. And it even smells like a new mown pasture, I'm told. So imagine the exciting place happening by dumping in minute amount of iron ore powder. And again, it's the same thing that nature does with a dust storm or with a volcanic eruption, and you get a lot of dust coming out of the volcano, and that dust contains a certain amount of iron. If for the dust storm, you may remember a few years ago, there was a big dust storm that blew across the Atlantic from the Sahara you know, around the equator to the Caribbean and around Colombia in the northern part of South America. If you imagine the Sahara Desert, that sand is pink, and the redness there is iron. And so if you look at the Atlantic Ocean, where that Sahara dust tends to blow, you'll find that the ocean is very green because there's plenty of iron and the other nutrients it needs. So what happens with the iron fertilization is they do it in the pasture, the plankton grow, the fish grow, and it, it pulls out. They estimated 10 years ago when they tested it that almost 100 million tons of CO2 were pulled out using about 100 tons of iron dust, which is a, a million to one ratio, which is what the scientists predicted back in 1990. And the other thing that happened was that the fisheries went wild. So this was done in the Gulf of Alaska, and the Alaska pink salmon catch went up by a factor of four and a half. They had to close the season early because all the storehouses, the warehouses were full. And you know, what had happened is the fish had food, and so they grew, and they didn't die. So there's revenue available from there to run the whole operation. It's about maybe 
you know, 10 or 100 to 1. That's to say, for every million dollars doing the iron fertilization, you get maybe 100, maybe 200 million dollars of fishery activity. Very, very profitable. But now you may ask, oh, wait a minute. If it's profitable, why aren't we doing it? The same is true of the limestone I talked about, that it's profitable, but why is it that you can't yet go to a hardware store and pick up the carbon negative concrete mix or salmon that was grown from a fertilized pasture? And the answer is that although it's profitable, investors tend to be very conservative. They don't want to stick their neck out. They don't want attention. They don't want blame. And so they say, well, we haven't been investing publicly in anything like synthetic limestone or anything like ocean restoration. And so they're a bit slow to make those investments. You know, once the wall is broken and people begin to do it, I have every reason to expect that there'll be plenty of investment. And today, you and your listeners are actually critical because you get to change the mood so that the investors think like, oh, yeah, well, we definitely want to restore the climate. We definitely want to restore the ocean. So it's nothing conspiratorial. It's just understanding human nature that we're a social species, hierarchical, and we tend to do what our society expects us to do. And our job, yours and mine, is to set the expectation that we're going to restore the climate, and then the investors will come in faster. Right now, the people working on the ocean restoration are looking for five to $50 million. And the money's waiting on the sidelines, just waiting for someone to jump first. I think that'll happen soon. Well, I'm very excited to be a part of that movement that you just described. So give us a sense of how much carbon can practically be sequestered into the ocean through these iron fertilized ocean pastures. And you mentioned that they've been experimenting with these eddies that are roughly 100 miles in diameter. Is that the preferred approach to fertilizing the ocean pastures? And give us a sense of the scale needed and how much carbon gets captured through this process and scale it up over the next, let's say, 30 years up to 2050. Yes. Okay, good. So as you said, the eddies are about 100 miles in diameter. And all the evidence right now says that each of them will sequester about 100 million tons, maybe maybe 200 million tons. Technologically, I would say 200 because technology always improves and there's no known fixed limit to what can be done. But either way, 100 million tons or 200 million tons per year for each eddy, you need about 500 eddies each year to be fertilized, which will produce a lot of fish for coastal communities around the world, especially those poor islands in the South Pacific, which they're beginning to go underwater. But not only that, their fisheries have mostly died. So this will improve things for them. Doing that by 2050, we should have the CO2 level back to safe levels. It's that simple. And what's nice is that because people care about it, And because the cost is insanely low, if you compare it to the direct air capture we talked about at the beginning, direct air capture costs $500 to $1,000 per ton to get CO2 out of the air. By comparison, the ocean fertilization is a few pennies per ton. Three pennies per ton is what I calculated. Yeah, so that's almost 10,000 times less. 
So it doesn't cost much of anything. So my point is that what we'll want to do is, and what we will do, our team is going to make sure, is pull the CO2 out at an optimal rate. We don't want to pull it out too fast because it takes time for ecosystems to adjust to the change in CO2 and change in temperatures. We don't know exactly what the optimal rate is yet, but we do know that we don't want to go too fast and we'll find out the optimal rate. My best first guess is that we want to reduce it a little faster than we want the planet to cool at about the same rate it's been warming. And that takes us back to pre-industrial temperatures at the end of the century and CO2 levels at 300 or below by 2050. That, that's pretty much how it's warmed up and that's probably how we'll want to decrease it. But the good news, it's not going to cost any government expenditures and you know it won't take much philanthropic funding. Mostly it's just going to be a few billion dollars of investment money going to make these projects work. So are there any arguments against these approaches to carbon capture and climate restoration? Well, there's always fear. And so the first question people ask is, are there any side effects or unexpected side effects? And there aren't any bad ones known yet. You never know. But right now, the side effects have all been good. And so with the synthetic limestone, they discovered that the quality is higher because it's more uniform and more easily controlled than natural limestone. For the ocean restoration, not only did the fish come back for the fisheries, but whales started coming back. The orcas, there hadn't been a new orca born in nine years before the test in 2012. And then two years later, with the gestation period is about a year and a half. So a year and a half later, there were nine orcas born. And so that was unexpected. So the good news is, in reality, so far, it's been really good. And the people doing it, of course, are always on their watch for what bad things might happen. But we don't see any signs of bad effects. You know, people ask, well, is the fossil fuel industry concerned about climate restoration? And you know, it's hard to answer because it's such a political issue. But the truth is that the men and women who work at Exxon and Shell and BP and so on, they all have families or pretty much they all have families and they want their grandchildren to do well. And so I've seen no pushback and I've been doing this for almost 10 years now. I've had no pushback from the oil companies. In fact, the oil companies often say, I wish I could help you, but if I were to help you, the political people who think badly of oil companies would give you a bad name. So we'll give you moral support, but we won't give any financial support at this point. But individuals have. I'm talking with Peter Fikowski. He's the author of Climate Restoration, the only future that will sustain the human race. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. While I was reading this, it occurred to me that we could actually bring on a new ice age if we pulled too much carbon out of the atmosphere. Could you talk about that risk and why you're not concerned about that? Yeah, it's a very important question. You know, if we wanted to have another ice age, we could. This was discussed back in 1990 and it scared people. I mean, it was said whimsically that we could start another ice age with a half a ship full of iron. But the thing is, we wouldn't want to. So we would stop 
you know, if the planet started getting too cold, we would stop what we're doing. And if worse comes to worse, we know how to burn coal. <laughs> so we should always put, you know, burn a little bit of coal just to heat the place up. But by the time we get there, which would, you know, it couldn't possibly happen before next century, our technology will have advanced so far. There'll be lots of solutions. But the point is this, that again, neurologically, our brain learns you know, when we're little kids, we get brain patterns on how the world works. And we always rely on our parents to take care of us. And we just sort of do what we do on the fringes. And this climate restoration, I call it a bar mitzvah for humanity. So it's a growing up where we're going from being kids and trying to deal with the forces of nature and so on. And as an adult, you know, I'm responsible for my family. You know, if there's a political change or an economic change or a climate change in my region, I'll do what I need to do for my family to flourish. And as humanity, we now can do the same thing. And so it's useful to notice that we've been acting, you know, trying to preserve nature, which is great, except that we've now to a large degree destroyed it. And so the natural thing for nature to do is to get rid of us. You know, that's what happens over time. The species that destroy their environment, they go extinct. And that's the natural way things would go. Although we now have the technology and the knowledge so that we can keep our planet stable and keep us alive for a very, 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 very long time, assuming we want to and all the evidence is that we do want to. So it's a matter of growing up and saying, okay, good. Rather than wondering what's going to happen, it's like, okay, good. Let's stabilize the planet back the way it was over the last 12,000 years. And when you read the book, you'll realize that it's not that hard to do. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about methane bursts and the yeah. threat that they pose. Yeah. Well, the story on methane is fairly straightforward. There are two aspects that make it very important. One is, and what got me going on it, is once I realized we could get the CO2 out of the air and keep our planet livable, I realized that there was this risk that we'd known about, many of us had known about for a decade or two, that the last time our planet lost the Arctic ice cap, and we've lost 85% of the Arctic sea ice now, the last time this happened on our planet, there was a big burst of methane out of the permafrost, the frozen land and seafloor, which released many billions of tons of methane. And methane is about 100 times more concentrated greenhouse gas than CO2. That burst caused a thermal spike on the planet, and that rapid warming extincted about a third of the species on our planet. So we want to avoid that. And the other thing is, it turns out that the solution to that, which is to oxidize the methane before the temperature rises much, you would think that the first goal was to try to keep that permafrost from melting, but we've simply gone too far. You know, and temperatures are 50 degrees Fahrenheit or 10 degrees Celsius in the ocean. And so you really can't stop it from melting at this point. And it turns out to oxidize that methane, and methane is the same thing that is the natural gas that you use on your range or your oven, perhaps. And oxidizing it is very viable. Nature does it. The atmosphere oxidizes naturally with a half-life of eight years. And so our plan is to double that oxidation rate, to double the amount of compounds that are oxidizing the methane. And 
the measurements that we've done and calculations we've done indicate that we can do it for just a billion dollars a year. And the idea is to double the rate at which the methane oxidizes naturally, and then that will cut in half the concentration of the methane in the atmosphere. And the amazing thing is when you do that, methane is such an intense greenhouse gas that that'll cool the planet. According to calculations, that'll cool the planet back to what it was around the year 2000. And if you remember in 2000, we weren't having these wildfires that we have. We weren't having these category five hurricanes and we weren't having the Arctic blasts in the winter. And people still knew when to plant their farms and harvest, especially in equatorial regions. So it'll, it'll be an amazing thing to do. And the way we do it, or the way we're planning to do it, is to evaporate iron chloride or a similar chemical into the exhaust of ships, of freight ships crossing the mostly the Pacific. And what's interesting about it is it's a solar-powered process. People have, have considered other methods of trying to do this on land, but the sunlight is the catalyst which triggers the reaction, which oxidizes the methane. And then the wind distributes the iron chloride. And what's nice is that the iron chloride is not dangerous, that it dissolves in water. And then in the ocean, it serves as some of the iron needed to restore phytoplankton. Now, the amount of iron from the methane oxidation is very low. So it may be barely measurable, the amount of phytoplankton it produces. But the point is, if it does produce it, it's a good effect because it'll reduce CO2 even faster. And if you inhale it you know, in the quantities that you expect, it's actually slightly beneficial since we need iron in our bodies and the iron chloride dissolves immediately into chlorine, which is salt, and the iron, which we need. So it's quite safe. More testing will be done, but the chemistry and the tests so far are very beneficial. Iron chloride is actually used in water purification. So like anything, and anything in too much quantity is hazardous. Water, <laughs> if you take too much of it, is hazardous. So the point is that in reasonable amounts, it's safe. So let's talk about population and why achieving a long-term sustainable population on the planet is so important in sustaining the human race as well as all life on this planet. Because we're not the only life on the planet despite how arrogant we tend to be about ourselves. Right, right. Well, it's interesting. It depends on how you define we. So over the last few years, I'm defining we as all of life on the planet because humans don't survive without a very healthy nature. So we are all in it together. And it's important to realize that, as I mentioned earlier, the global population now is 10 times the very stable level we had over the 10,000 years since the last ice age when we developed agriculture and civilization. And if you think about it, nature naturally gets the maximum viable population for every species. And it does that with a feedback mechanism so that for all species, for an oak tree, the number of acorns that turn into mature oaks depends on the resources available. The number of salmon fry that turn into mature salmon depends on the resources available. And for animals like humans or chimps, it's traditionally been about 30% of the young that are born survive to maturity. For an acorn, you know, it's probably 100,000 or a million. But 
you know, it takes a lot of effort to raise a kid. But you know, the way nature did it is by having a roughly 30% survival rate, if women on average over all of history, and that's true of chimps and bonobos, have five or six young, and on average, exactly two of them survive. Yeah, sometimes more, sometimes less. And we broke the cycle by raising our child survival rate from 30% to tripling it to 95. And that caused a population explosion, which will continue until we either lower it ourselves, which we are beginning to do, or it just collapses like in lots of other species. The thing to remember is that for 10,000 years, if any tribe had decided it would have more children, and there are ways to, you know, to have more children and have them survive for at least a while, because they needed soldiers, for example, warriors, then they could do that until they decimated their environment, at which point the neighboring tribe would destroy the tribe that had too many people and that had destroyed their environment. So you now can see that there was a mechanism there's a natural reason for why the global population was about a billion in 1800 and gone up very, very slowly as our technology improved from, you know, from rocks to bronze to iron and so on, you know, over 10,000 years. And the population has gone up fourfold in the last hundred years. And, you know, there's no one I know thinks that there's any reason to think it's survivable. Again, I have that distinction of a safe harbor. And so the population we want is one that we know the planet can, can hold because we want society to survive. And all the evidence right now says that 2 billion, the population we had 100 years ago, is a good number for that. And then the really good news about that is we can get there without any dire action. So when people say, oh, it sounds horrible to go from 8 billion people now to about 2 billion in 100 years, but the thing to remember is that by the end of the century, pretty much everybody alive now will have died a natural death. And so it's just a matter of how many children get born between now and the next century. And then if you do the calculation, and as a physicist, I love doing the calculations, you find that if we have a birth rate about the same as in Italy, that's the average global birth rate, and that's about 1.3 children per woman. If we continue the smaller families that are happening, I imagine you've noticed just from your childhood to the present, if we go down to 1.3 globally on average, then by the end of the century, we'll be naturally back at a sustainable population. And we know how to have small families. The main thing is, again, humanity is what we like to call a complex adaptive system. So if we change the set point, if we say, our collective goal is a sustainable population. And that's very different than the traditional stable population. So if you look at the UN estimates, they're looking at that we should stabilize the population. And if you draw the curves to stability, the UN figures it'll be you know, 9, 10, or 11 billion people, which you know, from an environmental perspective is pretty clearly not survivable. So if you make a goal of a sustainable population, then it's natural for families to have one or two kids, and some of them will have none. And you know, I noticed on my family vacation this summer that most of my nieces now are not planning to have kids. And at first I was alarmed. And I thought, you know what? That's probably smart. <laughs> and so my point is, 
the intervention needed is talks like this, where people realize that where we want to go and where we are going is a sustainable population and families will be smaller because that's the natural thing to do. Now, you know, for my nieces, I hadn't given them a copy of the book yet. They said, it's too expensive. You know, if I have kids, where are they going to live? How are they going to buy a house? Who's going to pay their college tuition? When I talked with them, they realized that what they're doing is actually the best thing for future generations to bring our globe back to a sustainable state. They made them very happy that they had a justification to have, you know, in their cases, no kids, but in a lot of cases, just one kid. Mm-hmm. So what would life look like if and when we achieve climate restoration and sustainable population? Well, I'm thinking, and hopefully you know, our listeners will think the same too. You know, the Dalai Lama said that your job in life is to be happy. When I first read that, I thought that he was really naive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I figured I would figure it out over time. I was young, so I'm older now. You know, when people are healthy and they get to participate with their family and their community, they tend to be happy whether it's a concert or a play or a baseball game with the neighborhood kids or the city council meeting, people enjoy contributing and being healthy. And that's pretty much what it takes. So if you imagine a planet you know, with a population that we had in 1920, so that's the year my parents were born, not that long ago, then you know, our rainforests would come back we know how to restore the oceans so the fish and the whales will come back and there'll be a small enough population with high enough technology that most people will be able to do a fair amount of traveling and going to exotic places. Hopefully we'll figure out, I haven't thought about this yet, but we'll want to figure out a way to keep Tokyo being Tokyo, except that a lot of Tokyo will be underwater because sea level rise doesn't look like it's stoppable. We can slow it, but we're going to get quite a bit of sea level rise. We don't know how much yet. No one's done the modeling, but hopefully we will. But the point is, we do want a lot of variety and a very healthy environment and some interesting technology so that you know, our day-to-day lives, even when we're traveling, doesn't negatively impact the environment. Although I personally, I think I'm guessing you might agree, I personally want to keep you know the exotic places exotic. I don't want them to look like my place here in Silicon Valley. How we'll do that, I don't know. We have smart people around to figure that out. Mm-hmm. So for people who may be skeptical about all this or who want to just find out more information about all of these solutions to restore the climate or want to get involved, where can they find out more information? Well, you can come to my website, peterfikowski.com. That's Fikowski is F-I-E-K-O-W-S-K-Y. And then the Foundation for Climate Restoration, that you can spell it out, foundationforclimaterestoration.org or F and the number 4CR.org. Those are the two places right now. And of course, read the book and buy it for your friends. People are getting very excited about it because I find that people haven't realized how resigned we are, that it's just not going to turn out. And you know, we hope it'll turn out, but we've been resigned. When people realize that we can put our hands on the knobs and actually steer our planet back to stability and to have very healthy nature, we know how to do it. And there's no real opposition. 
you know, the opposition has been people hoping that if you do things my way, things will turn out well without defining what well is. The breakthrough here is defining what we really want, which is CO2 in the safe harbor range around 280 and population in the safe harbor range around 2 billion. And we can do that. So the main thing to do is promote the thinking and allow people to go through the phases they must go through when they realize that sea level is going to change. And if we stay on the path we've been on, we're not going to survive. But if we change path, which only costs thinking that we want to survive, then we will. This book is very exciting to me, and I'm very excited to share this with my audiences. And it's been wonderful to talk with you about this. Well, Tonio, it's been wonderful to think it through with you and to have your questions. And I'm imagining your audience getting excited. And that's what I want to do. As I said, you got to you got to go through the resignation. You got to deal with the fact that we've been resigned. Once you get to the other side of that, then there's a lot of action to take. That's Peter Fikowski. He's an MIT-educated physicist and engineer, an entrepreneur, philanthropist, and social innovator. He's worked at NASA and taught at MIT. A decade ago, Peter began working on climate restoration and created the Foundation for Climate Restoration, which works with scientists, innovators, policymakers, activists, and students to further climate restoration and has been instrumental in the adoption of climate restoration as a goal by the Vatican and the United Nations, as well as other nonprofit organizations dedicated to reducing atmospheric carbon and methane concentrations back to pre-industrial levels. He's also the founder of the Stable Planet Alliance, which is working to frame the next set of United Nations development goals to achieve a healthy, sustainable population by 2100. And Peter is the author of this new book we've been talking about, Climate Restoration, The Only Future That Will Sustain the Human Race. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I'd say
my tears fall down and wash away
that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. 